Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. This is hour two of our show for the 16th of January. I am substitute hosting for Carmen LeBurge. Dr. Peter Kapsner joined in studio, of course, by the ever-faithful and the ever-wise Paul Perot this morning. Good morning, Paul. The check's coming. The check, the check is coming. So you, it is, in, in my mind, it, it, the, the cold is absolutely bone-chilling out there. But I suggested that at the top of hour one, and you were saying that I really... Maybe I need to rethink that. Maybe I might not even be the hardy Minnesotan that I think I am. I lived six years in Fargo. <laughs> That's so. And I know cold. And it oh, is cold. Chilly. Up there this morning. Cold. Oh, yeah. About 20 below with the wind chill down around 35 below. And with that, they have, and now this is just Fargo. Yeah. A wind chill advisory. Oh. so Yeah. The- if this were to happen down in the Twin Cities or... They would be, you know, Apocalypse Now type stuff uh, with chill warning, you know. But up in Fargo, yeah, it's just it's just Thursday. Yeah, I get it. Well, and speaking of the apocalypse, it sounds like the horsemen are riding tomorrow with a snowstorm coming in. I mean, are we getting like 45 feet or what's no, happening here in the Midwest? No. At least, okay, the latest I've seen for, this is just the Twin Cities, um, about 6 to 12 inches okay. is what they're saying, kicking in midday. Um, I know they're going to be hitting... A lot of the upper Midwestern cities, uh, Fargo, I think Sioux Falls, Duluth. Um, not so sure about Madison, but yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, it's been great to be with you again this morning. We've been sort of uh, centering around a theme about the idea of how Christians are in the world, but uh, not necessarily anchored to or tethered to the world. And when I was in Scotland this last uh, holiday season, I had a chance to meet with a 32-year-old pastor, uh, much brighter than I will ever be. And he was uh, he, he gave me a clue about a, a first or second, I guess it was a second century letter called The Letter uh, to Diognetus. And uh, in this letter, we see sort of a little window in how life was for Christians before they came into social power in the Roman Empire. They found themselves on the outs of the political spectrum, of the sociological spectrum. But uh, it's a pretty compelling description as what this uh, young pastor said in Scotland. He said, you know, you in the United States of America, you've already lost the culture war. You just don't know it yet. And you're clinging to politics at this point as sort of the last vestiges of your hope. But eventually, even that is going to uh, fall to the wayside. So be prepared for life in a, in a post-Christian world. And he said, maybe read some of the letters of the pre-Christian Christendom world to get a sense of what that could be. So wrote an ex- uh, read an excerpt at the top of hour one. I'll read that same excerpt now, uh, excerpt as you're listening here this morning in hour two. Uh, the letter to Diognetus uh, goes like this. Christians are indistinguishable from other men by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based on the reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. And unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress and food and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in. And yet, and this is what caught my attention, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. 
They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the earth, but they are citizens of heaven. And the letter goes on from there. And, Paul, I sent you the link to this. This is something we could put up on the Faith Radio page, right? If listeners listening this morning want to catch the entire thing on some level. I can put it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's really worth uh, giving a full read to. And, uh, Jim Bilby, we'll come back from break in a second. But this is a letter with which you're familiar as well. Yeah, this is a a great letter. This is um and and, and I think you're right the way you set it up that the, these are words that have a renewed renewed significance for us today given where we are in culture and yeah, maybe we're not being oppressed in all the same ways uh that 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 uh the early Christians were, but uh, our relationship to culture has been fraught for quite a while and I feel like we're just kind of stumbling around looking for something. And wisdom from this ancient age seems like a really good idea now. Yeah, well, thanks for coming in on this bone-chilling cold morning here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll take a short break and come back and let's you and I dig into this a little bit more and think about how we can be equipping and empowering families and the church and thinking about life in the future in the midst of a post-Christendom world. We're, we're off, right? Now I'm off. It is just about 11 minutes after the top of the hour here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the day for Carmen LeBurge, who is in much warmer Arizona, or at least on her way there this morning, and delighted to be joined in studio by Dr. Jim Bilby, who's a regular contributor here at Faith Radio on a number of different shows, and got up early this morning to join us. Good morning, Jim. Hey, Peter. How are you? Well, good. Heard your voice uh, just before the break, obviously, like that, but appreciate you taking the time on this. I don't know of too many other people that I'd want to have a conversation along these lines to be thinking into the future uh, relative to our past. And uh, again, no surprise to you in meeting with this 32-year-old young pastor who uh, was clearly smarter than than I ever will be at this point. And uh, he was sort of effortlessly moving between ancient theological quotes and current atheist kinds of quotes and really reading the, the, the times is what he was so capable of doing. And what he said, and I do want to get your reaction to this, is he said, you know, we in Scotland and we here in Europe at large, we've already lost the culture war. Our churches on Sunday mornings are primarily empty. These old cathedrals that are these beautiful stone um, places of worship have become almost museums in some ways that are subject to tours more than anything else. And, and Christianity doesn't have the kind of social influence in the educational system anymore or, or maybe in the government system uh, on any level, political, all of those sorts of things that's sort of absent. And yet it can thrive in these places. And he is thinking about what does church look like when no longer is its chief goal to try to influence sort of the society at large in in those sorts of levels. And then he said this to me, that you in America have already lost that war too. You just don't know it yet, and you're clinging to sort of the last vestiges of political power in order to sort of have an influence in society. He said, but that will, from a historical standpoint, also go by the wayside. Prepare yourselves for life in a post-Christendom world. What are just some general thoughts as we kind of outline it that way? Well, I, I fear that he's correct. He's certainly correct about his own uh, context in Scotland, in, in Europe in general. Um, there are really interesting pockets of revival, but it doesn't look like what we would think uh, from 
formerly Christian nations. And I fear that he's also right about our context. Now, people might just push back and go, well, we're filling these churches and we have these huge churches and there are just so many people coming and there's so many people engaged and and I think that's right, and I and I'm not going to be you know one to say that you know the mega church movement. There's everything's wrong. It's not it's not at all Christian because there's some really good things about it. But what I fear is that we have become more like the culture in order to get the culture to kind of come and perpetuate our position of cultural significance. Mm. We have. Uh, we we've we haven't been the salt and light that we've needed to be in all sorts of places and i think that a lot of the battles that are really most significant have already been fought and they've already been lost by us on these in terms of cultural significance now really clear that does not mean that the gospel is lost yeah. does not mean that christ is lost does not mean that we have no hope or anything like that because but what it does mean is that we've started to uh, in certain segments of American Christianity by the lie that our hope is found in our political yeah. significance or in the numbers of our church. Our hope is n- was never found in those things. And maybe the sooner we realize, the sooner this these some of these external losses occur, the sooner, sooner we'll realize that we shouldn't have hope in those things and we'll start looking for things that do have more profound and lasting hope. Yeah, I want to drill down into that a little bit, what you just referenced in terms of my, what might be happening in the churches these days, some of which is really helpful, some of which maybe we need to think about in terms of what how we define being relevant. But I think to just circle around your point for a minute longer here, to what I'm hearing you say is that even if Christendom, as defined by sort of social power or social influence, is uh, maybe at risk a bit or we're losing some of that, Christianity itself and God's kingdom is not at risk at all. Yeah, and how could it be, right? Right. So imagine uh, from what Jesus taught and from the interaction he had with his disciples, and even extend that into the first century, imagine the thought that they might have that Christians are just so afraid of the loss of political prestige and inability to dictate, you know, uh, what happens in you know, powers, actually, if I can use the term, the principalities and powers of government, right? Um, They would be just befuddled by that because they, that wasn't something that they expected. And they, they always saw their power as being the sort of thing that would come under and around people and lift people up rather than the power over of government and society. Um, And so, uh, yeah, I think that their hope was a very different one than ours, um, and we've gotten a little taste of the power, and now we don't want to relinquish it. And I fear that it's tainting our presentation of the gospel to society. Yeah, and I think, Jim, it, you call, when you're talking like that, it calls to mind, um, without getting into whether somebody should be Republican or Democrat, we're not talking about politics this morning, but, but what I noted when, as a media member, I went to the one of the local Trump rallies when he came to Minneapolis, and it was, it was a stadium filled with 20,000 people overflowing and all of that. And it was one of the things, and I talked about it with Carmen one morning on the show, that I walked away with saying, okay, I mean, we need to support and we need to pray for and participate with and all of what we talk about relative to government. But it felt like at least in pockets and in windows that had crossed the line. I literally were, were, was watching a group of people raising their hands almost in worship 
as the Star Spangled Banner was being played. And there was a sense, I didn't know if I was in church or at an event at some times. I mean, I was 40 feet away from the platform as the president came out. And it was as euphoric of a situation as I have seen. And it, there really was a sense whoever was in the room was placing their hope in a governmental figure. And whether it is Obama, whether it is Clinton, whether it is Bush, whether it is Trump, whether it's the ancient Roman empires, this is, we're never called to put our hope into people like this. Yeah, and and, and neither into nations, right? right? Now, I, I'm proud to be an American. I think there's a lot of good things about being an American, but uh, it's not like I'm a Christian first and then I'm American. I'm like a Christian. Oh, yeah, and I live in America, yeah. right? I yep. mean, so it's it, it, I don't even want to put them on the same level, but I, I still I think that there's that's compatible with being proud of certain things, but it also we need to have a pretty wide eyed look at what it means to be an American and what sort of impact that has in the world and in other ways, and that I think that uh, again and to your point we don't put our hope in the government whoever's running it we don't put our hope in. Um, any particular sets of policies because those ultimate, those policies are going to be compromises and they're never going to be, even at their best, an articulation of Christian truth. Mm-hmm. We're going to live in the world, but we're desperately not going to be of the world and our hope is definitely not going to be found in this world. Yeah, that's well said. That's Dr. Jim Bilby joining us here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll step away for just a minute, but when we come back, Jim, let's get into that conversation a little bit more about thinking about empowering and equipping towards the future and what relevance can really mean when it's not necessarily looking like the culture. How can we be relevant in the lives of families and teens and older people, younger people across the board as part of this great kingdom? So we'll get into that conversation here next on Mornings with Carmen. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen, having a lively conversation with Dr. Jim Bilby this morning about life and preparing for life in a post-Christendom world. And Jim, before we get back to our subject, but it does connect to it a bit, you released a couple of books, uh, Four Views of Transgenderism, as well as a book about the nature of salvation. But you're working on another book right now. Tell us about it. Yeah, I'm doing... I'm doing a book that I thought I would never really write, um, and it actually is a little bit autobiographical, and uh, so the rough title is uh, A Short-Lived Atheism, Reflections on uh, Doubt, Skepticism, and Return to Belief. Mm. And uh, and what it is, it, it's kind of occasioned by my own faith crisis yeah. uh, in college, losing my faith, uh, being an atheist for the better part of a year, and then uh, my coming back to faith. And so the kind of the questions are, why did I leave? Why did I come back mm. and how and, and what sort of significance does that have and what can we learn from that? Um, and and it, of course, it's it's driven to some degree by uh, the fact that, you know, you and I, we teach college students and yeah. they have all these questions. And there's some really Im- good lessons that I think that are that are there for them that uh, perhaps have been helpful for them that I I think maybe might be helpful to give a little broader hearing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been fun. It's it's my very first popular book. Uh, it's a very different book than anything I've ever written before. Um, it's much much easier. I, I, I don't have <laughs> I don't have a thousand footnotes per chapter. It, it but it, it's but it's been fun. It's been fun to dig into. Yeah. Well, it does connect a little bit into the, our remaining topic this morning, and that's the idea of what the church can be doing to be preparing our young people. And, and relevance is obviously all churches want to be relevant. 
But I think we could at least have a brief conversation about what we mean by being relevant. And I know certainly as I am working in seminaries and, and I uh, sometimes I'm with pastors, I just did a class on advanced preaching for young pastors. And there's a sense in which to be relevant means that you have to look like the culture and your sermons better have some YouTube videos mixed in and, and you better be part of sort of the latest trends. You better be wearing the right kind of jeans, possibly have a tattoo. Uh, there, there's just there's a whole look and feel and vibe that we associate with being relevant. But what I would suggest, and related to what you said and what we see in our young people, the name of your book that has to do with sort of a crisis of faith idea, that's what I mostly see in young people coming in, is filled with doubts and turmoil and uncertainty, don't really have an anchoring in the word to speak of, uh, of any meaningful fashion. They don't have a sense of purpose and identity and bigger story. It seems to me that relevance could be redefined to help empower and equip people in these ways that doesn't have really maybe anything to do with looking like the culture. Yeah, the the church tries so hard to be relevant. And so what we do is we have this sort of boiled down, simplistic Christianity, and then we put on the garb of cultural relevance. And whether, whether it's the tattoos or whether it's the earring or whatever, whatever's the cool thing, right. you know, du jour, right? And then and then we are kind of surprised that the younger kids aren't that interested in what we're articulating. And that's because they could care less about irrelevance. They expect 40 and 50-year-old people <laughs> to be irrelevant. I've been in, irrelevant for 20 years, in right? In cultural ways, yes. exactly. And so our relevance in cultural ways is, irrele- is does not help them at all. The problem is, is they are looking for so much more in yes. the way of meat and engagement and and some of it is if they're just looking for somebody to go, yeah, this question that you have, that's a heck of a question. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You know what? Let's talk about that a little bit. To even just acknowledge that the questions that they have make sense yeah. and are difficult. Um, but then to direct them to some deeper answers and to walk with them th- through the process of their working on the answers, because they're not going to just download the answers. They're going to engage them, and they're going to rip them apart, and they're going to make them their own, and sometimes that's an uncomfortable process. But to walk with them through that and give them permission to not end up in this nice, simple, comfortable, happy place that we all want to sort of like, you know, do three steps and then get them there, right? Yeah, yeah. And and that's what they're looking for, and that's the relevance, and that's the level of engagement, and the sort of what we think is culture, culturally relevant, they're, they're just dumbfounded that we do this. And this is why the younger generation is leaving the church in droves. Yes. They're not necessarily leaving Christianity. They're, they're, they're are, you know, maybe still finding some value in Christianity, but their involvement with organized formal uh, understandings of religion, in particular in Christianity, has, is plummeting. And unless we figure out Unless we take a good hard look at ourselves and realize why this is, we're going to have a lost generation. Yeah, I think we got a couple minutes left here, Jim. But I think you know, from the privilege of our perch at two different Christian institutions, one commonality that we have is that we get a wide swath of young people from various evangelical backgrounds that might have been different in their upbringing, but there is that commonality where there are so many questions and so many doubts and so much uncertainty. And I'm sure you experience it in the classroom. When you begin to articulate the beauty and wonder of God's kingdom, it almost gets to be this sacred pin drop moment. The, the room gets really quiet, and you can almost sense the hope that there could be hope is, is what I would call it in the classroom, the hope that there could actually be hope. Yeah, I'm sure you see this sort of thing, too. Yeah, you know, I, the first thing is I think, again, you need to give them permission to ask the question. Yeah. And once they do that, that's sort of freeing. And then they like, whoa, okay. And then they're waiting, and then you, you, and then you engage, and, and you 
push through some some of the trite, simplistic responses and even dismiss them and say, no, those aren't great. And you push through to something real and it is just like this. Whoa. Yeah. And it's like, why has nobody ever told me this before? And part of the problem is that I've noticed that like for you and I, some of these things that we're saying are really obvious things, things that maybe the church has talked about forever and we think they're obvious. And so sometimes maybe we're not that, you know, like throwing them out there right on the very first day of class. And then we lay them out there and it's like, oh my goodness, I've never, I've never heard this before because this, the, these core deep ideas are not being taught. Yeah, I think the beauty of all of that is it does speak to an idea that there really is truly a kingdom that knows no end. And, and as we sort of find ourselves in alignment with it and participating in it, there is a power that comes from that that really does speak hope and love to the human heart. Well, Jim, I appreciate you getting up early this morning, joining us in the cold weather. I know you and I are talking about some work ahead in the year to come that can continue to address these issues in different modalities and different formats. And I'm looking forward to continue to work with you and to see your book come out. Uh, when are you going to finish this if it's happening so quickly? Oh, I don't know. Maybe six months or so. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, thanks again. Well, Take a break here on Mornings with Carmen. When we come back, we'll uh, talk with uh, author Daniel M. about his book, What uh, You What You Do and Six Other Lies About Work, Life, and Love. So, Jim Belby, you're still in studio with me here this morning, and we are talking about life in a post-Christendom world. And I know one of the options historically that Christians have done, if they don't want to try to stay within society, is they go ahead and flee society, maybe the Desert Fathers, and they've formed sort of a monastic life. So in the news headlines that Paul Perot passed over to me today, I do have an opportunity for you and perhaps me to do just that. It says that Ireland is hiring two people to manage a coffee shop where you can get paid to live on an island with free food and coffee. And it might sound tempting, but as always, there's a catch. The tiny island is off Ireland's Atlantic coast and has extremely limited electricity and hot water. But the ad allows for the opportunity for two people to run a coffee shop from April through October. Last year's caretakers did quit their jobs for what they once thought was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And there is no word of what the job pays, but we can go apply if we want to become desert fathers in Ireland. Are you interested in the job? And uh, how are you, how's your coffee-making skills, Peter? Oh, well, you, very you, limited. Yeah, yeah. Especially I, without electricity. Yeah, so I'm thinking I'm not going to be great at this either. It feels to me like a failing proposition, but the idea of a island off Ireland, you know, getting away, getting back, you know, do it, do the St. Anthony back to the desert. Right. Sounds pretty good. Well, I think we should probably try to stay within society to the extent we can, but this opportunity will beckon in the future. Thanks again for joining us as part of the conversation. We'll take a short break and talk with author Daniel M. next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Locato. Our society is set up for isolation. We communicate via email and text messages. Our mantra, I leave you alone, you leave me alone. Yet God wants his people to be an exception, people of hospitality. Every day in the temple and in people's homes, they continued teaching the people and telling the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Even a casual reading of the New Testament unveils the house as the primary tool of the church. The first generation of Christians was a tinderbox of contrasting cultures and backgrounds through the clearest of messages, the cross, and the simplest of tools, the home. So do you have a front door? Do you have bread and meat for sandwiches? You just qualified to serve in the most ancient of ministries, hospitality. This is Max 
Locato. It is 20 minutes before the top of the hour here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner, sub-hosting for Carmen for today and tomorrow. And we're joined at this time by author Daniel M., who has released a book, You Are What You Do, and Six Other Lies About Work, Life, and Love. Good morning, Daniel. Hey, Peter. It's great to be with you. Yeah, you too. So I've been, uh, I guess you could probably say pseudo-whining all morning about the weather here in Minneapolis, but you're coming to us out of Edmonton, Canada, from what I understand, and it's about 19 below up there. And not only that, Daniel, I understand you actually chose to move there from Nashville, Tennessee. So you got to give us a little window into how this happened. Well, come on. I mean, who who wants who I mean, who doesn't want to say that they live in the coldest place on earth? Right. Colder than the North and South Pole this past week. So <laughs> I think it's for bragging rights more than anything. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, this book is pretty compelling that you wrote here and uh, this idea about the lies in which we might find ourselves. And I think the compelling thing about the idea of living in a lie to me is that when you're living in some kind of delusion, it's not like you're walking around, hey, I'm living in a delusion and this is great. The, the nature of delusion itself is that you don't know what's happening. And I think a lot of us are living sort of in what you would call half-truths as well. And, and that's part of what's in this book. So you've got a number of, here, uh, number of them that you outline here. The first one being you are what you do. And uh, tell us about that a little bit, Daniel. Yeah, the half-truth, as you were mentioning, behind that lie of you are what you do is that what you do for work affects how you see yourself, right? So, I mean, think about it from that perspective. You're like, well, that that still sounds fine as well. But when you tease this out all the way through, even when you think about it from a birth and onwards, so as children, we're asked what we want to do when we grow up, right? As adults, yep. we're asked what we do for work. At the end of our lives, we're measured by what we've done. So, it's not surprising that we believe this lie that we are what we do. If you, But if you tease it out a little bit longer, there's no end to a life of doing, right? Doing does not actually result in none. It just actually leads to more doing and doing and doing. And if you tease that out all the way through, it actually leads to exhaustion and mm. despair rather than the fulfillment of what we think we're getting when we live this kind of life. And I think that that is really connected to something that you reference in your book as well, and that being the common and very popular phrase, the American dream. And that, mm. that has such positive connotations to it. Who doesn't want to be living and having the American dream? But sometimes, I don't know what your observations are, Daniel. I see if part of the American dream is that you have had a very successful career and that you've been able to sort of find your way financially, that you get a chance to retire comfortably and all of those things. But there is so much sadness, depression, and meaninglessness for many people that find themselves in their 60s and 70s and got to the point of what they thought would be the pinnacle moment of this American dream. And it turns out to be a, a false illusion at best. You're right, because how do we achieve this quote unquote American dream, which is not I mean, as a Canadian, it's not just an American thing, right? Uh, especially with globalization. It is a global thing in many countries. And, and, you know, you try to achieve this American dream by doing or maybe by amassing stuff, or perhaps it's even this idea of amassing knowledge, right? Thomas Jefferson said, uh, I mean, he's the one that wanted to freely promote knowledge. He's the one that talked about how powerful knowledge was. The interesting thing is both Hitler and Pol Pot did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, and I right? think, so yeah, knowledge is valuable. Yeah, the pursuit of knowledge is so important. But how are we then using that knowledge and are we building that life, building our lives around that? Because even that doesn't necessarily satisfy either. 
Yeah, it really doesn't. And some of the circles in which I've run these last 15 years in academia, that uh, idea of you are what you know or the knowledge that you have, boy, it gets to be a really competitive environment in so many different levels. And and you sort of, uh, even by the fancy tassels that you might have on your cap at uh, graduation <laughs> when you're walking yeah. through commencement as a professor, there there sort of is this pecking order. And we do have values of, uh, of who's more successful as seeing I must get to that next rung on the ladder if I'm going to have a meaningful life, right? Yeah, and but the the thing is, you're inevitably going to meet someone who has more tassels than you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> who knows more than you, and even if you think you've gotten all the way to the pinnacle, you end up at a party talking to someone who makes double what you make with less than half of the education you have. Mm. So then that becomes a little meaningless too, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely does. Well, there, there's a backwards-looking dimension to this as well, too, in terms of people can sometimes get stuck and live in a delusion that doesn't have to do with pursuing something of the future. But you have a very compelling piece of this that somehow our past is always going to define and haunt us and, and be what our central identity is. So talk a little bit about that, too, when we've maybe had failures or maybe we've even had successes that we're trying to sort of recapture and reimagine and, and redo in our lives. What does it mean to not be necessarily defined by your past? Yeah, the past is a tricky thing because the things that we've done and the things that others have done to us affects us. It affects us in our everyday. And if, but, but, but the problem is the more we latch onto that past or the more we live out and focus in on the past, that actually has the potential to disable and to kind of hinder us and destroy our future because we're living in the past rather than experiencing the present and moving toward what God has for us in the future. We're talking with Daniel M. this morning, and he's written a book, You Are What You Do and Six Other Lies About Work, Life, and Love. And Daniel, take a short break, but when we come back, I want to introduce the idea of syncretism in the conversation, this, this sense of blending cultural values with our faith and our sense of self, and how all of that maybe sort of captures what you're writing about here. But even more importantly for the listeners, if we're not going to live according to these lies, what are the truths by which we can and should live that might actually bring peace and hope in this journey? So more to come here next with Daniel M. on Mornings with Carmen. <laughs> We are back here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner, subbing for the day and chatting with author Daniel M. about some different lies in which we might find ourselves living, maybe not even knowing it. And Daniel, I understand that you have three children. Yes, I do. You do. Ten, nine, and five. Oh, what a season of life that is to, to be raising those ages. Uh, I'm sure you're, you're quite busy in the midst of all of that. Oh, man, parenting is, is fun. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of lies there are. that surround that and, and expectations, especially with social media and everything that you see online now. But uh, there definitely is a lot of joy to it, too. Yeah, well, you reference that even the idea of parenting as one of the lies in which we might live. And I think about, Daniel, just uh, yesterday or two days ago in my class, a student that I've had in a few different classes is now married. And uh, she said in class that she's pregnant and, and just glowing, obviously, with the possibility of the future. And, and as should be the case, and we, and we celebrate and welcome new life. But it is possible that in so doing and becoming a parent that we end up almost unwittingly living in a lie that can be along the lines of you are what you raise, you are who you raise. And so tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. So our culture celebrates involvement rather than neglect, right? Mm. I mean, there's even laws against neglect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my wife is a social worker. One time there's a lady who was her kids were apprehended by child services because she went to the grocery store with her monitor, with one of those old school monitors, thinking that it would work. 
right? So we hear stories like this and we're like, oh, but that's neglect. How did she not know? Did she not do the work? And so we celebrate the, the counter, which is involvement. But underneath the surface, the more involved we are and the further we take this down the road, uh, this lie actually frauds us into believing that our children's success is our success, mm. that their failure is our failure. So it, think about the last time you were at a grocery store and maybe your kid was, if, if you have young kids or think back <laughs> to that time, they were yelling and screaming or even complaining. Why, yes. why do we care so much about that when at home they might be doing the same thing and it's, you know, we don't have, we're not embarrassed the way that we're embarrassed <laughs> at the grocery store. Well, it's because we believe that they are us and we are them, their failures, our failure, or their successes, our success. And unfortunately, the more involved you are in their lives, the more we believe this lie. Yeah, Dan and G, I, I have no idea what you're talking about with my five young kids out in public. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can I can safely say that uh, there's sort of a heightened uh, maybe embarrassment that has way more to do with me than it has to do with anything. They're just they're just being kids. So with that, Danny, I'd be curious some of your thoughts about how then we can live to sort of break free from some of these lies. Because I think, again, almost unwittingly, there's this idea of syncretism, which is defined as we take on the values of our culture and we almost embed them in our faith. And it's represented in so many different things, like somehow a church that has more people is blessed or bigger or better just because in our country and, and in North America, when you have a bigger organization, it's seen as more successful or perhaps the mm. idea of a personal relationship with Jesus, uh, though we do have that, it can lead to the idea that we're sort of independent of other people as opposed to a connected body. And so we live in all of these kind of half-truths or syncretistical ideas. How do we break free from that? How do we start walking in the truth in our lives that can bring a different sense of wholeness? Yeah, so it's really important, like like anything in life, instead of just putting a bandage over uh, a, a, an open wound, we need to clean it first. We need to know, and even systemically, what is underneath that so we know how to treat that. So each of these seven lies aren't just random seven things that I popped out or, or, or thought about. Each of these seven lies actually finds its root in the growing gig economy that we are living in. Right, this idea where more and more people have part-time or full-time jobs, where they're working for themselves, themselves, um, getting paid for their time, skills, and expertise. Right. So, just a quick search on the gig economy. Economy, we'll see just how quickly that's risen. Now, systemically, what the gig economy has done to our culture is it's actually elevated these lies of um, these lies and this epitome of freedom and flexibility. So freedom and flexibility have become the ideal and the thing that really kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, the American dream, the thing that we all need to attain. So the more freedom and the more flexibility you have, the more successful you are. And then all of these seven lies actually then contribute to that. But you look at Matthew chapter 11, just as an example, and you look at, okay, what in our world can actually lead to freedom and flexibility and it really is nothing, whereas Jesus, what he says, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The only true path to freedom is through Jesus. The only way to discover the truth is through Jesus, and it's, it's, it's fascinating because our culture says freedom and flexibility, do this. 
doesn't work. Okay, well, yeah, that's that's okay. That worked for that person. Do this. And it just puts us on this hamster wheel of trying one thing after another to obtain this, whereas in reality, only true freedom can be found through Jesus. Mm, that's well said, Daniel. And I think about that hamster wheel that we find ourselves on as parents and grandparents mm. and people just trying to function in life with jobs and stuff. It is not easy to get off that daily hamster wheel and try to be anchored in a different way of life, is it? No, no, because a life of doing, it leads to a life of worrying, right? A life of experiences leads to comparison. A life seeking acceptance from others leads to a loss of self. Every single one of these lies, it leads to something that we don't want. I mean, even the one around parenting, it actually leads to a life of narcissism the more we focus in and become obsessed with our children because at the root of this is actually pride, thinking that you're in control of your children, that you can shape them, that you can lead them. But ultimately, the the older your kids get, the more you realize you just aren't in control of all mm. these different variables. Mm. Danny, we just have a couple of minutes left here and I'd be curious about your perspective on the importance of sort of disentangling ourselves on a daily basis from whatever the important things are in our lives. I think about the quote from Dallas Willard, who once said that it's not a question of whether we are going to be formed. The only question is by what will we be formed? And if yeah. we're living sort of in these delusions all day long, they do really begin to take shape and form us in our lives. So talk about the importance of, again, disentangling ourselves from daily life, at least to some extent, to be formed by something different. Yeah, I love I love this illustration about spiritual formation where we can't actually kind of like sleep. Uh, we can't cause ourselves to sleep, right? We can mm. create the conditions in which sleep will come, but we can't just press a button and automatically go to bed. And it's the same with spiritual formation. We can create the conditions in which we can grow, but ultimately the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to shift and shape us, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3. So when you look at each of these lies, there is a counter, right? We're not what we do. We're children of God. We're not what we experience because we're actually new creations. We're not who we know uh, because we're actually, we need to be rooted in the fact that we are known by our loving Savior, Jesus, right? We're not what we know. We're actually complete in Jesus. We're, we're not what we own because actually we're more valuable than silver and gold and we're not who we raise because we're God's masterpiece and we're not who we're past because uh, we're actually free from all condemnation. The only way that we can know all of this is if we're daily soaking in the Word of God, in the Scriptures, and allowing God to form our identities and who we are rather than the magazines on the racks or uh, Netflix or whatever else we see. The, the 5,000 plus ads that we see every single day, uh, if we're not actually countering that, by soaking ourselves in the scriptures and allow him to God to refine us and to shape us and to renew us, uh, we're obviously going to be living according to what we have more input from, which most of the time is <laughs> our culture. Yeah, that's well said, Danny. Thanks for joining us this morning on Mornings with Carmen. Again, if you're listening, the book is You Are What You Do and Six Other Lies About Work, Life, and Love. Stay warm up in Edmonton this morning, Daniel. Thank you. Take a short break and wrap up our show for this morning on the 16th of January on Mornings with Carmen. You know, Paul, I think about some of the themes that were running through our various conversations this morning here, and it really was a group of people that were thinking about how do we, how are we equipped and empowered to live mm -hmm. life as believers in the world around us, not necessarily entangled with it, but participating in it certainly, but anchored in something different. A lot of great voices this morning. Yeah, I think you, you with the that letter from Magnetus, yeah. yes, I mean, just kind of set the theme for the show today because yes, he, we are in the world, 
but we also live for a higher calling and we're part of something larger. Yeah, that's well said for all of us listening this morning. It's great to be with you this morning again here on the morning show. It's a phrase that I use often, uh, something part of my life about 15 years ago, thinking about how that tomb is empty. And because that tomb is empty, we really are part of a kingdom that knows no end and it is never threatened. It will never be diminished and never be destroyed. So as you do your day today, anchor yourselves in the beautiful kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.